Welcome to the Responsible Finance Podcast, the official podcast of the Responsible Finance and Investment Foundation. I am Blake Good, the CEO of the RFI Foundation, a global nonprofit organization working to build awareness, promote research, and encourage convergence in the responsible finance industry, including socially responsible investment, ESG, Islamic finance, and impact investment. The purpose of the Responsible Finance Podcast is to connect you to the leaders behind innovative approaches to creating positive social impact in responsible finance. In this podcast, we talk to Matthew Martin, founder and CEO of Blossom Finance. Blossom Finance has focused on connecting investors to financing that has a social impact, specifically financing Islamic finance microfinance institutions that work on a cooperative model, Baitul Malwat Tamwil, or BMT, that are found across Indonesia. As the world of blockchain has developed, it has been inspiring to see Blossom change to take advantage of the latest developments in the service of social impact. And with a focus on Sharia compliant financing for those who are otherwise excluded from the financial system. In our conversation, Matthew outlines a big development for Blossom, which is a smart sukuk they have developed using the blockchain to open up sukuk issuance to smaller issuers including those with the social focus, benefit from the efficiencies created by the blockchain. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matthew. Hi, Matthew. Uh, welcome to the RFI podcast. Uh, could you please introduce yourself and Blossom Finance? Hey, Blake. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my name is Matthew Martin. I'm CEO and founder of Blossom Finance. We uh, focus on helping institutions that are, that are responsible either Sharia compliant or socially responsible institutions, raise funds. And so far we, we've been focused on microfinance in Indonesia, which we can talk about, but we recently announced a, a more broad platform that focuses on issuing sukuk or essentially issuing uh, risk sharing, uh, risk sharing financing instruments on the blockchain. Yeah. So sukuk uh, with blockchain, how does that work? Yeah, so, um, you know, when we looked at blockchain, we were really excited. I mean, I had this vision of putting Sukuk on the blockchain a long time ago, and it's basically taken a few years for the technology to, to be available, really. Uh, back when I started Blossom, there was Bitcoin, there were things called colored coins and other sort of interesting tech, but nothing like what we have now, which is full-blown, quote-unquote, smart contracts. So, um, you know, smart contract, um, for some of your listeners who may not be as familiar with them, is basically, um, it's, it's a blockchain technology that allows you to enforce contract rules right within the blockchain and the currency itself. So, for example, let's say you wanted to issue a security that's based on profit sharing, okay? So, when people send you money using the blockchain, their ownership in this instrument or their ratio of capital is, that's invested is known by the blockchain. You can then use that ratio of the capital they've invested to make dividend payments or profit sharing payments, right? So some of the, the terms of the actual contract uh, can get baked in via computer code that's then uh, put into the blockchain and then no one can change that contract. So in, in many ways it can reduce both the um, complexity of the operational complexity of facilitating those payments and accounting, et cetera. Um, and also just, you know, the ledger of uh, the cap table, who owns what, all that stuff is automatically managed by the blockchain. 
in addition to reducing some of the counterparty risk. How do I know the underwriter is actually going to split up the payments correctly, send me the money that's owed, all that type of stuff. Um, and it also creates an indelible history of, of a track record of securities that have been issued by which institution and did they pay on time and, and you know, did everything work out for the investors. And, and we think that's also very, very interesting. So specific to Sukuk on the blockchain, um, there's only two, as you know, and many of your listeners probably know, Sukuk has a lot of different types of Sukuk you can issue, right? So um, because we're very focused first and foremost on microfinance in Indonesia, our first Sukuk product is a, is a profit-sharing Sukuk or Sukuk al-Mudaraba. And the way that will work is um, investors uh, invest their capital into this uh, Sukuk. They'll, they're issued an exchange, they're issued a token. Now in uh, the blockchain, in the, the Ethereum world, there's a standard, an open standard called ERC-20. So the ERC-20, it's basically a specification that has been widely agreed upon and standardized. And, and that specification allows any token that conforms to that standard can be easily traded on any Ethereum exchange. So any Ethereum exchange that supports this ERC-20 spec you can list this type of security on. So one thing that's become very popular is, is the whole ICO world or initial coin offering. So a lot of companies have looked to this standard as a way to raise essentially equity funding um, or quasi equity funding uh, using this standard. But it, it's not just for raising equity, right? It can be for any instrument that is essentially an ownership in something that you want to be transferable. It could be a token that represents ownership in a business, or it could be an asset. It could be pieces of gold, that, uh, the asset that backed it. It could be anything. It could be pieces of a security in the case of Sukuk. So investors in Smart Sukuk, we, we like to call it Smart Sukuk because we think it's, you know, smart contract meets blockchain, plus we think it's a smarter way of doing things, right? So sort of a tongue-in-cheek name, a tongue-in-cheek name. So ish, uh, investors into the Smart Sukuk, get in exchange a smart Sukuk token. That smart Sukuk token or tokens represent their portion of ownership in the underlying Sukuk. When payments are made from the issuer back to the Sukuk holders, those payments are dispersed to the Sukuk token holders automatically using the blockchain. Uh, and then uh, as well, any, any payment against the principal amount, depending upon the Sukuk structure, um, that is also dispersed back to them. And then they can... Uh, withdraw that those funds via the blockchain at any time that they that they like. So something some things that are maybe unique to what we're doing. Um, we have recognized through the institutions that we've talked to that issuing Sukuk. It's very important that number one, the institutions that are issuing Sukuk don't have to take on a cryptocurrency risk or foreign exchange risk. Right, mm -hmm. the issuers want it in their local currency. They don't want any crypto risk on their books. Right. So the way we achieve that is we issue this. We have a set price. We have a, a, a either a soft cap or a hard cap for the amount of funds that an institution needs to raise. So for microfinance, it's generally a soft cap because generally, you know, they're willing to do a deal at or above a certain size and then they have capacity up to a certain limit. So there's a that soft, you know, there's that that minimum and then there's a maximum for a construction project, which is the other Sukuk structure that we, we've worked on. Um, there's a, usually a hard cap. You know, you only need $10 million to build this hospital, for example. So that cap we specify in Rupia because we're focused on Indonesia. And there's a, a technology called a pricing oracle, 
that is basically a distributed way of, of knowing at any given moment in time what is the current exchange rate between Ethereum and Indonesian rupiah. And the way that works is you, you set up several trusted counterparties who are a reliable uh, source of information about the price of Ethereum. And they periodically push updates to this thing called the pricing oracle. So pricing oracle is basically another smart contract and all it does is tell you how much uh, rupiah does it take to purchase one Ethereum, right? And so based on that exchange rate, that source of truth about the exchange rate, then certain events related to the Sukuk can be triggered. So you imagine there's investors periodically sending Ethereum to this smart Sukuk. And how do you know when you have enough Ethereum, right? Because Ethereum to rupiah price fluctuates periodically. So we know that because anytime someone sends Ethereum, the smart contract checks against the pricing oracle and sees, ah, I do not have enough Ethereum yet based on the exchange rate. And then when more Ethereum comes in, it checks again. Ah, okay, now I have enough Ethereum. And then it triggers, you know, the closing and, and the disbursement of the funds, et cetera, based on the pricing. So that's kind of a unique thing that is allowing us to um, issue these securities in rupiah or other, you know, local foreign currencies, et cetera. Um, and then underneath this, of course, is a whole legal and compliance layer. We're working with a fully registered venture capital firm in Indonesia that is, is legally um, allowed to issue these types of securities. Um, and then in the U.S., we're set up as, a, as an LP uh, to take funds, et cetera. So, you know, this is not some, uh, some crypto anarchist uh, fantasy. This is, you know, this is a, a fully legal, compliant, structured product that happens to have the efficiency of the blockchain uh, as well. Yeah, part of it, it seems like, uh, as blockchain matures and as crypto and token world matures, the the role of the blockchain becomes more subtle, where it increases the efficiency, but it doesn't necessarily uh, factor in something that the investors or the uh, issuers are seeing in a direct way. Absolutely. And I think a great analogy for that is the browser, right? Um, people understand generally in, the in your browser, you open up Google Chrome, Firefox, Internet Explorer, whatever your favorite flavor is, they understand if they see a green lock icon on the top left next to the URL, that means the site is secure, right? They get that. But they don't need to understand uh, you know, encryption. They don't need to understand cryptography. They don't need to understand how signing keys and signing chains work and, uh, you know, issuers of, of uh, authority, et cetera. They don't need to understand all that. They don't need to understand HTML or HTTP or, or SSL or any of those te underlying technologies, but they know, hey, I see the lock icon in the browser. Because I trust Google Chrome, I know the site is secure because I, I, I kind of understand that Google Chrome is uh, following these standards that have been established. And I see blockchain really as a protocol and, and, and an underlying technology in the same way that, you know, HTTP, TCP, IP are technologies that power the exchange of information. Yeah. And so when those, when the information is used uh, to structure the smart Sukuk, what types of projects are getting funded? You mentioned uh, uh, project finance, you mentioned uh, microfinance. What are the, the areas that you focus on uh, first with, with this uh, smart Sukuk structure? So right now we're focused uh, first and foremost on funding 
microfinance cooperatives in Indonesia, and specifically ones that use the BMT model. So BMT is a Betel Tamwil model, which is a combination of commercial microfinance, but with a social good aspect. So basically these cooperatives provide uh, savings products free to their local communities. So they're owned, operated, and run by the members. The members are local members of the community. And for people who are, who are um, you know, either marginal in terms of, you know, their economic status, they're either marginal or, you know, on the lower end of middle class, the normal fees charged by a conventional bank in Indonesia are, are still substantial for them, even if it's only one U.S. dollar or two U.S. dollars a month. That's a non-trivial trivial amount. So these institutions provide a free savings account with, with zero fees. On top of that, these institutions actually go around to their member communities on foot, on scooter, uh, by car. They visit people in the field to facilitate people to deposit their savings, or to, if they have a financing with the, the cooperative, to pay their financing payment, right? And what's amazing to me is, you know, uh, I was taken around one time um, to a traditional market uh, in um, uh, Sukarejo in, in central Java, and uh, they, they took me around at 4.30 in the morning. It was right after the morning prayer, uh, and the market traders were already set up in, this, in the main bus station. For a few hours in the morning, they set up and run a traditional market there uh, and set, you know, selling food and all sorts of stuff, mostly food and, grocery and vegetables and you know, kind of daily grocery type stuff, fresh from the farm. Uh, and the microfinance agents were already there at 4.30 in the morning, going around, collecting savings from people, and then allowing people to pay um, their financing agreements if they have them. Now, most of their financing agreements are monthly, um, actually all of them for that institution. In broadly speaking, BMTs do monthly financing arrangements, meaning you have to make a monthly payment. Um, but the vast majority of their customers or members, I should say, opt to make a daily payment uh, because that way they never get behind. So it's much easier for them to track their daily cash flow and always put money towards their financing agreement daily so they never get behind. Um, and what's great is they don't have to go to a branch to do that. They don't have to go to an office. They never have to leave their business unattended. The microfinance agent comes directly to them. And what's really amazing is when you see the interaction of these, these agents with the community, it's not a banker behind a, a bullet, <laughs> bulletproof glass window. It's really their neighbor, their friend, someone they trust. Um, and because of that, 90% of the people who receive financing from BMTs end up becoming savings account holders, meaning their, their economic situation has improved from needing money to needing a place to save their money because they have it now, right? And, and we think that's, that's, that's a really great sign that these institutions are making healthy investments in the community. So anyway, that's you know, a long story about how the commercial financing works and the savings product works. And you know, members are able to participate in the commercial financing by, by earmarking, say, three, six, or 12 months of a uh, batch of their money that's in saving towards these um, financings. So from the commercial financing profit, the, the cooperative takes the, some of their profit and they, they look at the society, they look at their community, and they say, what are the problems here? So perfect example of that is garbage. It's 
uh, waste management, which is still a, a big problem across the Indonesian archipelago. So in central Java, several of these microfinance cooperatives have seen a need for better waste management uh, services. Rather than lobby the government and rather than try to get the government to do something about it, they took some of their profit, they created a, a waste management business, and they gave that waste management business to the poor people who were jobless in the community. And so, you know, they purchased the equipment, the, the, uh, the garbage trucks, basically, were actually, which are actually like uh, scooters with a big um, uh, bed, you know, like in the back, like a pickup truck, but a scooter pickup truck, right? And they, they created this business. They uh, bought the equipment. They trained the people. And then they gave it to the, the poor in the community that were jobless and said, here you go. This is your business. And so the, the neighborhoods pay a fee for the trash collection. And uh, that generates uh, not just a, a salary, but, but a profit for these, um, these now micro entrepreneurs who are now running this trash collection business. And BMT, you know, gives this, you know, packages it all up with a nice little bow, gives it to the poor in the community, and now they run it. And BMT exits. Same thing for, um, they found uh, needs for wholesale, grocery wholesalers. So in Indonesia, um, home, sort of home-based convenience stores and grocery sales are very common. You find one on every corner, every block sort of has at least one family that runs, they call them warung. Warung is like traditional corner store market kind of thing. And uh, the, the prices, there wasn't a good wholesale option for these, these grocers, these convenience stores. So they did the same thing. They created a, a, a cooperative business. They set it up. They bought a building. They bought inventory, and then they gave it to the local community to run it and to operate it and to take the, take the profit from it. And uh, it's a beautiful store, and you can see pictures of it, some pictures of it on our website. Um, so all these little, even things like hospitals, right? They found a need for a hospital. They build a hospital. Some, in some cases, five-story, seven-story hospitals with 100, 150 beds, you know, uh, with uh, full radiology departments. And, you know, we're not talking some tiny little clinic. Some of these institutions have really built some amazing medical facilities that provides fixed rate, affordable health care for um, the local community. Uh, for, I mean, for anyone who who's, you know, can't, can't uh, afford it, they pay a fixed amount. It's about 10 U.S. dollars or 8 U.S. dollars. And they can see a doctor, get the medicine, all the treatment they need for a fixed price. And if they can't pay, they do have facilities to help people who can't even afford $8. And all of this is from that commercial microfinance activity. So it's really, really amazing and inspiring to see. So our, our first focus of the Smart Sukuk is giving international investors access to these MFIs by, by uh, Sukuk that is profit sharing. So the Sukuk instrument is based on profit sharing with these MFIs. So an investment into the Sukuk, that money is then channeled to our network of these cooperatives that then in turn make these investments into uh, their local communities, helping micro-entrepreneurs. And the profit from that is then shared between the cooperative and the investors. And then the, the second project, which sort of spun out of that original one, is around construction. So a lot of these institutions undertake construction projects. Sometimes they need to raise money for that. Um, and they found there was no Sharia-compliant uh, financing vehicle for them to raise funds, even for some very, very large established institutions. In some cases, they've even gone to Gulf investors, flown all the way out to the Middle East, shopped it around uh, projects of the size of around $7, $10, 50000000 million for construction, and, and tried to raise money and just had doors closed to them. 
And their only option then they're left with is going to a, con a conventional bank and taking out a conventional loan. And a lot of, a lot of these, all, you know, all the ones in our network and, and many institutions in Indonesia are religious affiliated organizations, right? The, the desire to do social good is stemming out of a, out of a religious philosophy. And so part of that religious philosophy is not taking conventional loans with interest. And so to only have that as an option is, is really something that's regrettable for them. And so we saw that, hey, wait a second, we could also use this smart sukuk to fund construction projects. And so we see that as the second big opportunity in Indonesia is in foreign investors getting access to uh, physical real estate projects, you know, construction and real estate projects um, that are doing a social good that also are gen generating a commercial return. And we're, we're planning to do that with a, a sukuk structure called Sukuk Alijara Alistisna, which is basically um, the way it works is investors uh, invest their money, a, a, let's say, use a hospital example. So investors invest their money. The hospital building is constructed over the period of about a year. Once the hospital building is completed, the investors own that hospital. So investors own a physical asset. So it's asset-backed Sukuk with a hospital being the asset. And then the investors lease the hospital building to the operator for a period of say four years. And those lease payments are what generate the commercial return for the investors. And over that course of time, also there's a payment towards the principal to repurchase the hospital. And after four years of the hospital being in operation, the hospital has been completely repurchased from the Sukuk holders and the investors exit at that period of time. And the operator has full ownership of the hospital and, and they're very happy. Investors are happy. They've, they've got a profit. So how so the size of this can range then anywhere from a million dollars to a hundred million in terms of what it's set up to do? Is that the the range that uh, of investors' interest? Is it projects at large? We see that as the sweet spot of where I mean, sweet spot for us, the the sore spot for it for the is issuers. That's the that's the sort of ticket size where the cost for someone to issue conventionally becomes prohibitively expensive, at least in the Indonesian market. Now, the Malaysian market is a little bit different. There, it's a little bit more established there. Sukuk is a lot more Sukuk are issued. So there's a lot more infrastructure in Malaysia. But in Indonesia, it's, it's quite underdeveloped, um, you know, the, in terms of the amount of Sukuk issued, the types of Sukuk that are issued. And so for an issuers who wanted to raise, like you said, a mil, uh, 1 million up to 100 million, um, a smart Sukuk is a much better option, lower closing costs, faster execution time, et cetera. Um, uh, but above a hundred million, it starts to become sort of like just as, just as good to, to do a conventional Sukuk, just not on the blockchain. Um, now, granted, if you do the conventional, you're still limited to investors, for example, that have access to the Indonesian Bourse exchange, right? Cause you're issuing on that exchange. That's the only place where you can, where you can, um, do the primary and secondary uh, placement of your Sukuk. So we still think there'd be benefits for other, for larger ticket size above hundred million to do a smart Sukuk. We think it's just a better offering overall. However, we recognize there, there may not be as much benefit to institutions raising over hundred million. So that's why we're focused on those, those lower ticket size micro Sukuk, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so like on the investor side, what is the typical characteristics of the types of investors that, that have expressed interest in these, both in regionally and whether or not they're specifically Islamic uh, investors and sort of what types of institutions they are. 
Yeah, so um, it's been a mix. Um, in the U.S., we've had quite a few uh, high net worth individuals who are non-Muslim who just think it's a, it's a good idea. The commercial return is, is attractive and, and they're sort of value-based investors. Um, in the Gulf, we've had a couple uh, in, uh, individual investors as well who've committed some funds. Um, and then as far as institutional, um, we're st still pretty early in the stages there. Um, and one you know, thing we're really excited about is that uh, we've recently added um, Khalid uh, Haladar as a senior advisor. Um, so he comes from Moody's rating agency where he worked in uh, the rating of, of fixed income in Sukuk. Uh, issuances and now he's gone on his own and has a has a advisory firm called Accreditus and he's very excited about what we're doing and so we feel like he's going to bring a lot of um, knowledge about um, how institutional investors are thinking about Sukuk, what's attractive, their risk tolerances and and the things they like to see and so um, you know he'll be a very key part of our our offering to the institutional investors. Yeah, because institutions tend to be more conservative in how they adopt new structures or new technologies and, and the types of things that they invest in. So, you know, that showing the success at the, from the individual investor level uh, builds that track record. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, we really think that we have to, we just have to build a track record. That's really the key. And the great thing about the blockchain is, uh, you don't have to trust our documentation of whether our track record is successful. You can, you can see it in the blockchain. <laughs> Any publicly available version of the blockchain will show you what we've done, right? And so you don't, don't take our word for it. Go look at the blockchain and that shows how much was raised, uh, what the repayment period was, how much the investors got at the end of the day. And we can, we can figure all that stuff out. And looking sort of into that information, how much of the, how much of the process is done either in off-chain uh, digital form or on-chain tracking in terms of in terms of the uh, specific investments that are made uh, once it gets into the, uh, the MFI uh, and how much of the social impact is being captured uh, yeah it's a great question so for the smart cook um, what happens on chain or on on the blockchain is the uh, the total amount that's invested um, so you can see so we still, we will allow um, investors to send us fiat money, right? Cash uh, is USD or, well, not cash, but <laughs> we'll allow them to, you know, wire us, wire us money from their bank to our bank. Um, and we, we, can, we can deploy that into Ethereum on their behalf. So, uh, so the visibility in terms of the blockchain, what you'll see is a number of quote unquote investors uh, of a certain you know size, basically you'll see the total amount that was invested, and to some degree, um, how you know what was the the to average investment size, what were the per you know per each investment, what was that size? So that visibility will be there. The total amount that was raised and what when it was raised, et cetera, when it when the first investment came in, you know when was it first published in a circular, and then when was it finally closed, and and, and how much was subscribed. And then when was the capital deployed? Where did the capital go? Um, and then beyond that, uh, it's just a matter of how much, uh, pay, how many payments came back. So for example, the, in the case of microfinance, so um, the smart cook won't tell you, you know, which beneficiaries received how much, right? We don't have that. Um, we haven't captured the beneficiary level details into the blockchain. Um, 
and the least, and the reason for that being, uh, no, you know, first and foremost is that in Indonesia, payments using uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum are illegal in Indonesia. So the, uh, and this is not a, an anti-Bitcoin, anti-crypto stance by the central bank and the monetary authority at all. This is the existing uh, legal tender law that's been on the book for, for over a decade. So you also cannot make payments in gold, can't make payments in silver, can't make payments in euros, can't make payments in dollars, right? So because of the legal tender laws in Indonesia, we can't do something like from this fund, then invest via the MFI to the beneficiary in crypto. And so you can see an individual, uh, you know, beneficiary receiving a payment and sort of doing interesting things that way. Um, that may be, that may work in other markets. Um, but, you know, when we look at it, we really want to make sure we're not at, we want to make it as easy as possible for the beneficiaries and the MFIs, right? So mm -hmm. um, we're, we're basically looking at the MFI as a whole, and we're looking at the, the metrics that they provide. And, and a portion of those metrics is around, um, uh, you know, in, basically in, increasing overall household income, uh, you know, non-performing finance, meaning, you know, how many people got received a loan and then we're not able to repay it, um, those types of things. Um, and our partner that we're working on, uh, PBMT Ventura, they have done a great job of putting together a rating system for uh, these MFIs, for these cooperatives. So they've, they've already done a lot of the hard work of going into the field to each cooperative, auditing them, looking at their financials, uh, digging in on the beneficiaries and seeing not just uh, is this commercially viable and, and like not, not just, it's not just about risk, right? They're not just assessing risk as part of that rating. They're assessing the social impact. How many social impact projects have you done of what nature? How much of your, how much of your commercial profit was invested into so those activities? Cause BMT was set up specifically to help this BMT model. And so they're very focused on making sure that not only the commercial component is healthy, the risk of the organization, there's good uh, organizational governance, et cetera, but also the social impact. And so, you know, when they, when they take us around, they show us a mix. They show us, hey, these guys are, have been really good at the commercial finance, but they're, they're lagging behind in their social projects versus these guys over here are just doing enormous number of social impact projects and et cetera, right? And so it's, it's a mix. So we don't have a way in the blockchain yet of capturing that and we're, we're Trying, we're thinking forward about how we can do that. Some of that may be, you know, boots on the ground reporting and, and you know, there's ways of, of capturing those reports and, and sort of stamping them into the blockchain, associating a report that's been produced and putting the report into the blockchain. Um, but so far today, you know, capturing the end-to-end -end payment all the way to the beneficiary is not something that's feasible or offering, it basically just causes a headache for the, for the MFIs and for the, for the beneficiaries. Um, and, uh, and then regarding the construction project, so a lot of that would be um, the legal title to the land. You know, a lot of the documentation around the SPV, the special purpose vehicle that's set up for the purpose of holding this, the ownership of the building, the, the deed to the building, the construction uh, contracts around the construction, all those things, you know, we certainly intend to stamp those into the blockchain and, and provide those as, as uh, evidence. Um, but it will be very much similar for the construction. It will be what's the total amount of funds that were solicited, subscribed, and then, and then uh, on what schedule did the lease payment come back, right? So, you know, did the issuer pay on time? How much did they pay over what period, et cetera?
Yeah, and that seems to be a valuable uh, component of, of what the blockchain can offer because it gives that certainty uh, ex post that you know exactly when different things happen because they get recorded in a indelible record. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there may be interesting ways, even if, you know, a lot of focus on blockchain is around payments, um, but there may be interesting ways of capturing the social good and the beneficiary information in a way that's sort of quasi-anonymous in a way that's not intruding into beneficiary privacy, which is also, also a big concern. We don't want to we don't want to over leverage our position as a provider of capital to beneficiaries. We want to respect their privacy. We don't want to be exploitive in terms of, you know, say, well, we're giving you money. So we have to, we have permission to use your face and your story all over the world. Right. Um, and there is, there is a, I mean, in Indonesia, there very much is a cultural sensitivity. We have to be aware of in terms of people being uh, marge from a marginal community or, or economically not very well off. Um, there's a sensitivity there and people are shy. You know, um, if people's clothes, for example, aren't the greatest clothes because they're poor, like the more shy or sensitive to being on camera, we have to be, we have to be respectful, I think, and, and sensitive to those cultural issues. So there may be interesting ways of using the blockchain in a quasi anonymous way to say, well, here's the portfolio of beneficiary, you know, each beneficiary has their own private key and, and, and we've certified that these are individual beneficiaries and they're tied to an identity, but not necessarily like, you know, you go on the website and you see every single person's picture and, you know, you yeah, see what I'm saying? Like the, yeah. And it seems like the, the way that things are moving and discussions around that, uh, that right to privacy is that it almost uh, has to be designed for the benefit of the beneficiary rather than for the institution's benefit. So it creates it creates a uh, identity, uh, a proof of identity. It creates a proof of, uh, you know, repayment stream, so that they can go take that if they are looking for a larger source of financing from somewhere else. That they have that to develop uh, a track record of of paying on time, being a good uh, a good uh, client to the to the BMT. That they can then use that uh, to establish. Uh, credit history for them uh, themselves. Yeah, spot on. Spot on. Yeah, we think there's something very empowering about uh, keep uh, building a credit history for um, these individuals that, that's, that they can then passport to other places, right? Um, you know, in the U.S., it's very much a black box, the credit rating. You know, there's, there's a pretty much, you know, three big ones and one that really, one is the only one that matters and it's a complete black box. And, you know, the, the joke is if you're from a minority community, you, you have a lower credit rating, right? There's a, there's a long running um, uh, joke about, uh, about, you know, like, uh, you know, something like, uh, you know, I have a white friend and I, I'm going to borrow his credit, you know, something like that. Right. Um, where, you know, it's, and it's known, it's based on truth. It's based on this discriminatory practice that's in, built into the, the rating system, but we have no transparency over that, right? So it's known in America that on the average, um, just by nature of being black or a person of color, um, your credit rating is lower based on this black box rating agency. And that's not really fair, right? Like um, it's, it'd be not much nicer if that, because it can so much, you have no control over it. It's just this thing that gets attached to you and you have no, really no say in it other than disputing if something was fraudulently placed on your credit. So the fact that I think it's very empowering idea that this credit score built on 
people who have self-initiated to take out financing and been responsible to meet those obligations to then have that associated with their identity and then can take that to other organizations, I think is very important. Yeah, I think that's a a great way to sort of look forward in terms of how the data record that's created uh, can be be used or once it can be uh, created at the beneficiary level, uh, that it be designed in a way that's primarily uh, developed for the, for the benefit of the, for the benefit of the beneficiary and owned and controlled by them ultimately. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the other side to that is um, institutions would love to have that because today for the unbanked population or underbanked, which is about 80% of Indonesia. So you're talking literally hundreds of millions of people, um, no credit history, no credit score. Um, there's plenty of institutions that would like to be able to service those customers, but can't because of a lack of any credit history. There was actually a company um, uh, called, uh, what's, there's a big institution in the U.S. that's now public. They do like peer-to-peer lending. So Lending Club, there was a company called Bit Lending Club that basically it was a clone of Lending Club but using Bitcoin, right? And uh it's not if they've since gone out of business um, because of, you know, they, I don't think they thought enough about regulatory turns. <laughs> they kind of had to like, you know, um, uh, do first and, uh, you know, uh, ask for permission as opposed to, uh, you know, ask for forgiveness instead of ask for permission kind of approach. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, they've gone out of business, but um, you know, they, I, I talked to their founder a year ago and, and he had mentioned that, they made a bunch of, I mean, they were running and operating in Indonesia, but the problem was because of the incentive, because their platform was, you know, they were doing bigger ticket. They weren't really super micro. They were doing like a thousand dollars and up versus a lot of our beneficiaries are only, only need a hundred dollars to buy inventory. Right. So mm-hmm. when, when the monthly income for some people is, is a hundred dollars or $200, you know, uh, the opportunity to have a thousand dollars in your pocket um, sort of incentivizes people to be dishonest. And what was happening for them was, so they basically required national ID card, Indonesian KTP, uh, uh, which is like the card to, you know, the national ID card. So they required people to provide that in order to get financing. So what the scammer did, they basically went to people on the street or people that they knew and said, Hey, let me borrow your ID card and your, and your face. Come here. Let me take a photo with you in front of the webcam with your ID card. I'll give you uh, $200. Now, to someone, that's, that's their whole monthly income. That's a great proposition. I don't care what you're doing with it. You're giving me a whole month's salary just for five seconds of work, right? So the scammers would basically rent IDs, get Bitcoin and Bitcoin loans, and then take the Bitcoin, cash it out, and, and never come back. And just you know, rinse and repeat and, you know, et cetera. Do it, do it from a new IP address, rinse and repeat. So they had a huge, just huge list of, of basically bad debt that built up on the platform in Indonesia. Because it was not high touch, there was no boots on the ground. It was just this digital only remote absentee kind of lending model with no respect to how is the money being used? Is it for productive investment or is it just for consumptive loans? As a result, it ended up with a huge portfolio of scammers um, because the incentive structure was not there, right? So, um, yeah, you know, and and because there's no credit rating, right? There's no they have an identity card, but that identity has no credit tied to it, right? So, 
Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like the, using the partners on the ground, the, the BMTs um, who have the, that daily personal relationship with their clients is a way that, uh, that takes the, the benefit of technology that brings the capital to these MFIs and then really puts it into the, into the community, into the uh, local economy in a way that's, uh, that's really uh, tangible and, and uh, based on relationships versus just based on trust in technology alone. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, I mean, these, these agents are on first name basis with all their customers and, you know, you don't see, um, you know, it's, it's funny that the agents actually pointed out in, in the morning when we were at one of the traditional markets, they pointed out uh, a loan shark that was literally like, uh, you know, scurrying around like in the shadows. I'm not kidding. Like scurrying around in the alleyways, like, you know, darting in and out to go, to go collect their, their money from, the business person and then darting back out of the, the they, you're not just walking sort of openly. It was really telling to see the difference in how the, the mannerisms of the agents and the, the smile and the, the, the mannerisms of their customers in the market and how different that relationship was. And, and many of them that I talked to, many of the um, beneficiaries they had in the past used loan sharks. And because, once they were made aware of the BMT model and they switched to it, it was like night and day for them. And they said, I would, you know, I said, well, why do you use BMT? And they said, Oh, because BMT, you know, treats me with respect. I never have any problem with them. They don't harass me. I, in the past I had a loan from a loan shark and I was, you know, they, they intimidated me and they harassed me and I never experienced that from BMT. They're very flexible. They work with me, et cetera. So, you know, the beneficiaries had very, very, very high praise for the, for the uh, microfinance agents. Cool. I think that's a, a really good way to sort of wrap it up. Do you want to uh, share the website address for Blossom? Absolutely. It's blossomfinance.com and Blossom has two S's. So blossomfinance.com. That's our website. And by the way, Great. we have a, we have a fund open now. Anyone who's in quick plug, anyone who's interested uh, to invest in uh, profitable microfinance in Indonesia to help do social good and specifically to help uh, traditional market sellers buy uh, inventory for the big Ramadan holiday that's coming out, which is their busy season, help them grow their business and take home more money to help their family. Uh, you can find out more about that on blossomfinance.com. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Blake. Much appreciated. Thanks again for listening to the Responsible Finance Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Podbean. If you want to stay updated about RFI's work, you can find the link to subscribe to our newsletter on our Twitter feed, at RFI Foundation. You can also follow me, at Sharing Risk. Hope you'll join us for our next podcast.